on RNZ National. Kia ora, happy Friday, Power Ballad Friday, September the 1st. Nice to be with her. Just a word on this, the $500 million Shelley Bay development has been cancelled. Sue Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh have bought it from the Wellington Company and Ian Castle's the developer. Uh, so quickly, around the panel on this, uh, Tory Farno, Wellington Mayor Simon is, spe- is holding a conference as we speak, saying, look, she was happy with affordable housing there, but thinks that the recreational reserve is also a positive thing. You've written on the, the coastal areas and Tomoki Makaro uh, on waterfronts, ports. What do you make of this development? I've written about housing too. Yes. I know that area well because I come from Wellington. Um, I think Tori Whanau, if that's what she's saying, probably has it about right. Wellington desperately needs more affordable housing um, and if this project was going to help with that, uh, then it's a, it's, a, it's a sad thing that it's lost. But that means there's got to be some kind of consequent development somewhere else, and I hope that proceeds. Having that area as a uh, as a recreation area, as a uh, restoring it to nature, I think is fabulous. There are a lot of pine trees there, so they have to come out. Uh, there have to be has to be a really serious attempt to make it restore it to native bush. So is, is that so? A recreational reserve does that only mean native bush, or because recreation does that mean a skate park? Uh, I mean, what actually does a recreational reserve mean? Is it only wandering around well, native bush? Or is, I mean, you know, Peter Jackson and, and, and Fran have incredible imagination. Well, they're the new owners. They said, yeah. quoting, it's a wonderful coastline that holds a great deal of cultural and historical significance. So suffice to say, we are looking forward to restoring the natural beauty of the bay. Okay, so that's not, not pines or Norfolk pines or anything no, else no. that sometimes get called natural beauty. Yeah. It's got to be native bush, doesn't mm. it? So uh, what I'm reading in between the lines is that there'll be a significant investment uh, in this particular part so. of Wellington, perhaps. But planting only? I mean, you know, perhaps cultural uh, opportunity, historical yep. opportunity? Who knows? I guess we'll wait and see, huh? Yeah. Anyway, that's the... Uh, the news just out this afternoon, uh, but to this, a year on from the disastrous Nelson floods, owners of wrecked, unlivable homes are now being offered a buyout deal similar to the one for Cyclone Gabrielle victims. Six million dollars from the council, Nelson Council, six million from central government. The city council has identified 14 households where the landslide risk was too high for people to return to their homes, but too expensive to fix, reports RNZ's Nelson Marlborough reporter, Samantha Gee. This on the back of payouts for homes in Auckland after the Jan 27 floods. The question is what if another significant flood event occurs and sooner than later? With us is Ian White, Professor of Environmental Planning, uh, who co-wrote an article saying that flood protection based on the past, that's flawed. Professor White, welcome. Thank you, Otherwise. I see. I mean, this is an issue playing out globally, isn't it? I see that the U.S. National Flood Insurance Program, that's $20 billion in the hole. Yeah, we're not unique in having to deal with this. Um, you know, I've been researching this area for over 20 years now, and we've been making the case that at some point we're going to have to start paying the tab for things that are being passed forward to us. And, and 2023 feels like for the first time, that's starting to happen, and, and it feels like there's a, a new burden on taxpayers, on national taxpayers, and local ratepayers as well, because the compensation packages like we see in now, 
they're not isolated incidents. We will be seeing more of these in the future. And I guess the issue too I'm thinking of is what's fair? Is it fair if you lose your home but you're a millionaire with another home? Is it fair to give a buyout to a homeowner who's fine and dandy now but has known about the issue and knows that one day they may not be fine? What's fair and what's not? Uh, Well, I mean, this is a really great issue for for things like the panel to discuss because we've got the two issues. The first one is, should we have a compensation scheme? And I I think we do, and we should. And then the second one, which is actually much more complicated, is, well, what does this look like? And there's no national templates around the world for us to to take, and we shouldn't necessarily do that anyway because we've got our own distinct and unique context. So... There's a few issues. The first one's about the level of risk and what we can know. So some risks, like landslips, they're actually quite difficult to predict. And so could those homeowners reasonably have known? Probably not. But I can trust that to beachfront properties where we've been warning about climate change for decades. There's maps. And I don't think anyone can believe they didn't actually know about that risk. That it's going to make the properties yeah. riskier. So, so do we have different mechanisms for different risks? as well as things like who should pay and what's fair. And if you knew about it, what happens then, Cindy? Yeah. So, Ian, I, look, I think that the, the point is the management of risk and responsibility. Now, if you are buying a property, you go to your limb report, and it's got in huge red letters, this is flood prone, it has flooded, this, that, and the other thing. I mean, I don't don't see why we can't say, well, you need to sign some form of waiver which says you have understood and that you will do some self-insurance. Oh, dear, that sounds quite chilling also, though. Well, but in Florida, did you know that in Florida, the, uh, the older people that are buying right on the coast, etc., they don't care. And they're just saying, we don't care because we're old and rich and we'll be dead. Okay. We, we have yeah. to make people care. Ian, do you want to stay there, get Simon, then come back to you, Simon? Uh, Ian, I was just going to ask if, if you um, are at all concerned, you've been looking at this for 20 years, are you at all concerned that after this year's weather, um, our political parties are taking this seriously enough? Um, In the election yeah. campaign, I mean. It, it seems to have an incredibly low profile in the election campaign, considering. But I, I can understand the reason because it's hard and it's costly. <laughs> <laughs> and which, which what isn't hard and costly? Politicians <laughs> <laughs> aren't particularly keen on. It, it's the old adage of you know, do you want to do you want to pay for the, the the fence at the top of the cliff now, or do you want to pass on the cost of the ambulance at some future date? And right. I think scientists like me, we're very much in the pro fence camp. Yeah. Yeah, and everybody would say they're in the pro-fence camp, though, wouldn't they? But when it actually comes down to it, um, telling people you can't build there or if you are going to build there, you've got to self-insure and the council and the government will not be there for you, that's a massively difficult process to go through. And people take councils to court uh, in order to uh, build where they want to. You have to start somewhere, though, I, I think, and... I'm just not sure if it's fair for the rest of New Zealand, because that's what happened, to be paying. I want to ask you a question then. Stay there, Ian. Would you be preferred, Cindy Mishner, to sign a waiver? If you're going to buy a new home, it could be, I don't know, anywhere. You sign a waiver saying, if it floods, I'm prepared to self-insure it or not get a payout. uh, If the limb report, or whatever you've called it, if there is a very clear history 
and the uh, what is the what's the term clear and present danger? If it is very clear, then presumably that is my decision. And but, goodness, but, but but those clear and present dangers we saw from Cyclone Gabriel. I mean, some places that were in valleys below the slash from forestry, you might be able to argue that was a clear and present danger. No, but I it wasn't think that's quite that. different. But if you th- take a place like Murawai and Karikari, the west coast beaches of Auckland, they had flood plans and they didn't have a flood problem with Cyclone Gabriel. They had a landslide problem. Right. They hadn't even expected that. Well, let's so bring they've had in. some of them before. Ian. Well, I think one of the things that is fundamental, which I think both both panellists are referring to, is to actually operationalise any kind of system, you need to have the underpinning science that tells you what is at risk, yep. yeah. what isn't, and what's, how certain are we, and, and how might that change under conditions like climate change. And, and we still don't have as good enough data in a lot of areas that we could have. So I think the first stage is investing in the underpinning science because this is quite a risky country. We are subject to a number of natural hazards. And then once you have that data, you can make informed choices and decisions about how the responsibility roles and and risk will be shared between everyone. Well, it's very nice to have you on, Professor White. Uh, As always, kia ora. Thank you for your time. That is Ian Y, Professor of Environmental Planning. Uh, as he says, it's a really big issue, isn't it? And uh, it just comes with a massive cost. It, it does. And I think there's a, a, a good question to ask of all the political parties in this election. That is, to what extent do your budget proposals acknowledge that we will need a significant climate emergency response fund? Uh, because if they don't, then what you plan to spend money on is going to be nonsense um, within a year, within two years, because we we know. We, we know in this country there will be massive new weather-related disasters coming at us over and over. But that's why we've got to start dealing with the known, OK? If there are people building time and time again on a floodplain mm. or the, if we, we put a stick okay, in the you're sand. angling towards personal responsibility. Can I just shout, can I still, before we go to our next guest who's waiting, a, a quick shout-out to a website that I'm absolutely addicted to. That website is called Flood Viewer. It's Auckland Council, and it, you, what you do is you go to Flood Viewer, and every single person in Tamaki Makoto, listen to this, will be going on to it as I speak. Google Flood Viewer. You put in your address and find out whether or not your house is flood prone. It is fascinating. I've tried to do all the addresses I know. And what does the council say the reliability of the data is? Do they is it up to date and did Yes. They, yeah. Yes, it's a new website. That's, it sounds it's new. called Flood Viewer. Um so I yeah, ha, it's very interesting. Do you address Absolutely, the Absolutely, yeah. I will. 19 paths for the panel. NZ Rugby needs to change dramatically. This is a highly critical review led by chair David Pilkington. It's also involved All Blacks former captain Graham Murray. It found that it was effectively a broken model and unfit for purpose, and the current NZR board ineffective. In the panel's view, New Zealand rugby has too many professional players, and the NPC seen as unsustainable in its current format. New Zealand cannot afford the overhead costs of 26 provincial unions, super rugby clubs, supposedly commercial entities struggling also. And where are the audiences? With us is Rob Nichols, CEO of the NZ Rugby Players Association. Rob, good to have you on the panel. 
Yeah, thank you. Good afternoon, team. It's been described as an historic review on New Zealand rugby. How much of a wake-up call is this? Well, hopefully it's the one we need, um, or the one we take advantage of, should I say. We definitely need it. Um, the good news about it was it was, you know, it was constituted by ourselves, New Zealand rugby and provincials. We asked for it. We, we wanted it because we knew with the bringing on of private equity and when you look at the challenges within society around sport and rugby from grassroots, you look at the globalisation of sport and professionalisation of it, it's a complex business, New Zealand rugby now. It's not the same business as it was 15, 20, 50 years ago when the constitution was developed and um, we need to evolve. Rob, and I... we looked at the game and said, are we governed fit for purpose? And, and the reviewers categorically said, no, we're not, and we need to change. I've got a couple of questions, Rob. The first one is to comment on the idea there are too many professional players. Yeah, look, I mean, I think one of the things people have got to be really careful when they read the review is there's a lot of things in there that everyone's brought to the table, frustrations around competition structures, too many professional players, lack of connection to the community and grassroots. All of them may or may not have merit, but all of that was brought to the surface to justify the case for change and to answer the question in the terms of reverence, which was, you know, um, is the governance able to deal with these kind of issues? And frankly, every issue is an opportunity. And the answer was no. So I can't answer that right now, but what the review is telling us is the answer to that question and where it needs to go to is not gonna get delivered by the current board or the current structures. Right, my second question, um, and I'm asking this as a big rugby fan. I would have thought the major problem, and there are two major problems in front of rugby at the moment, um, and structure actually isn't either of them. The first one is that it's a boring game. Um, It's become too dull. And the second one is that it's too violent. Um, And the second one means that uh, far too many, from rugby's point of view, lots and lots of parents don't let their kids play rugby, and they've got good reason not to because clearly the long-term health risks are significant. And the first issue around the boringness of the game, it has arcane rules that nobody can understand and it has long segments of the game where uh, it's pretty tedious to watch. Telling Uh, telling it like it is, Rob? Yeah. So, changing the structure feels a little bit like shifting the deck chairs around to me. But you need... Well, I think, Rob, the issues that you have highlighted definitely in that public narrative you know there's others that will have a contrary view but the reality is perception or not they are issues that need to be fronted and dealt with by the game and the whole reason is if you're going to deal with them or the whole reason for the review is to say you take exactly those issues you just raised and we were asking the question are we governed in a way that's fit for purpose to deal with those issues right and we're not that's what the report is saying and what it's saying is that um, we need to change the way in which we constitute and appoint a board to govern this game, and we need to change the way in which we engage with stakeholders in order to address exactly those issues you're talking about and perhaps you know, change the shape of the game, perhaps bring more research to the fore to combat some of the narrative that, that you just um, provided. You know? um, the point being you need a very competent board to govern the game through these kind of issues and adapt as needed. Shall I bring Cindy in, then you can Simon. Hi, Rob. 
Um, without making a pun, <laughs> our legacy structure is not match fit, basically. <laughs> so it was a pun. Mm. No, but seriously. <laughs> no, uh, I like that. It's not, and we need to own that. Yeah. We need to own it. So in and, my yeah. business experience, structure follows strategy. So we need to ensure that we have done the work up front in a strategic sense. I mean, private equity are not known for their Christmas presents or their empathy. They're not going to muck around with a governance structure that's not fit for purpose. We need to do it ourselves quite quickly or I don't know what you know what voting rights they've got. They will be doing it for us, mark my words, because they are not here to lose money. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I understand what Simon was saying. We have to have a social licence for the game um, and the dangers of head injuries impact on social licence. But I think that we still have, if you look at the support for women's rugby, you look at the growth that that's engendered, we as a nation are still right there behind our rugby. So we deserve to have the people running it to be match fit. Rob? Yeah, look, I agree entirely. Um, it's still interwoven with our identity. We're incredibly proud of, of particularly what the girls have been achieving and also what the guys continue to deliver on field, which is excellence. I guess and we my... deserve excellence off the yeah. field. And I think if I can come back to your strategy point, that's what this review has been about. And what it's saying is from a strategic perspective, we need to ensure we're able to appoint a board that is independent, free from political and influence, and able to get on and govern the game in a way where it can make the decisions that need to be made. And then what it's done, it's moved to structure, and it's it's proposed a structure that would deliver on that strategy. It also... Secondly, it said that it needs a board that is capable of engaging with the stakeholders from the grassroots all the way through to the professional game from the male to the female, from um, all the different stakeholders that are there. And it's the strategy is to create the stakeholder. Simon, uh, the structure is to create the if, stakeholder. If Council the, to deliver against that strategy. If the key issues yeah. that are driving away both players and spectators are to do with the rules of the game, that structure and that board also needs the somehow the capacity to persuade world rugby uh, to change the rules, doesn't it? And that's a, that's a, the, the solutions that's, to rugby in New Zealand, yeah, no, the big, another really the good big point problems, and once yeah, again, are not here. Yeah, a good example there for it would be a, you know, a global business, which rugby in New Zealand is, and having the competence and the skills and leadership capability within your governance and management to be able to influence the, goal, uh, the global game. Rugby has... New Zealand has always been the innovators. We've always been looked to right. by the rest of the world in terms of how we drive the game forward. I've, the report makes it quite clear that no one, that's no longer the case. I've got a We've final comment, them. Rob, um, because what I see uh, in my very new experience, I've got a little five-year-old who is absolutely passionate about his rugby, and so he has brought us into the culture of suburbs rugby, little club rugby, and... The spirit, the wairua, the warmth I see every Saturday and at practice on Wednesday of club rugby, it's, it's been next to none, Rob. I've been really inspired by what I've seen on the field, awesome. you know, families getting together. It's actually been quite a life-changing experience. And I would like to think that that continues for not just my little junior, but for the rest of the kids around the country who are actually really inspired by rugby and want to continue and want to keep going to it. I guess my question is, how can we keep that spirit alive? 
Yeah, look, um, the way I would describe that is it's the way in which we present the game to the community. And I think for a long time, the game has just assumed people will play it. And it's been a little bit top down. Dare I say it, and I'm part of it, a little bit arrogant. We've actually got to come along in a more humble way to say, hey, listen, the sport of rugby offers you so much. It's camaraderie, it's connection, it's community, it's where you meet great people. It's where your kids can grow personally, personal growth, character, all that kind of thing. And we've got to present it in a way where they can engage it. It's called a brand campaign. I think it needs a whole (laughs) rethink in terms of how we are doing it. It's more than that. exactly what you described. It needs to come across the country every weekend. No, no, I, I, I'm, the, I'm with you, Rob. Just yeah, to I, I, I was people are interested in so final too. Um, I, I coached kids rugby for many years, and it was in largely in uh, working class clubs. And for many of the kids there, the rugby was the key thing in their life. Absolutely, uh, it was a fantastic Absolutely. experience, and it was the place where um, parents who had the ability to get the kid to training. Uh, was, it was fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always been a force of social cohesion, a force of good, you know. I mean, you look at the country rugby clubs historically, it's the places where people went on a Friday night to download on their crap week or their good week. It's where I, they meet their future I, partners. That's hmm. Whether it's rugby or basketball or netball, we don't really care what the sport is, but it's really yep. important to our community and our identity. I would have no thought there's another wake-up that rugby needs and, and that we've just seen that in the, um, in the Football World Cup. Um, the far, far more kids play soccer, play football than, than do rugby in this country, and it's not a well-known thing. And sooner or later, football in New Zealand is going to, going to be taken over by people who know what they're doing uh, and are going to, going to grow that game for adults as well. Uh, yeah. Well, Rob, for now, all the best. Really appreciate uh, your time this afternoon. No worries. On that last point, I made one point. We're not in competition with each other. The more kids <laughs> playing sport, the better. <laughs> no, ab- ab- absolutely. And what a great game that Manawatu is walking was, by the way. Not many what people saw beauty. it, but it was yeah, just fantastic. Northland uh, and Hawke's Bay tonight. Yeah, yeah. Went to Hawke's Bay Auckland the other week. Uh, no, we're, we're, we've got our NPC tickets. <laughs> I, got, I got up and yeah. watched the All Blacks. Yeah, very Whole good. Whole family did. Hey, Rob, kia ora. Uh, there's Rob Nickel there. And, um, that yeah. must have been fun for you. <laughs> Well, they blame me. It's, they win it Did when I don't get up and watch. I'm, I'm, a rugby, I'm an NPC convert. That's why I'm quite sad about so it. So club rugby, you mean? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I love it. And, and NPC, right. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's right. just, it feels real. It's real rugby. Are you dissing the All Blacks too? No, no, I'm just saying what... <laughs> Dalton Papaliki's from Papakura. Um, someone yeah, says uh, here, uh, afternoon rugby used to be 20,000 odd people at Carisbrook watching the Otago back in the 90s. It was, and it was all atmosphere. It is now gone. Um, Wallace and team, when I was young, the vast majority of youngsters were active outdoors. Many were members of scouts, guides, Swimming clubs now quite a lot considered gaming to be a sport. Shouldn't communities and our political leaders be encouraging and enabling more involvement in the outdoors and sports? Tech- Safer streets. Well, <laughs> it all comes back to part of that, doesn't it? Anyway, 